Well, praise the Lord. Uh, I enjoyed that song, Grace Alone, Sola Gratia, um, as the Reformers would say. Um, that is the centerpiece of true Christianity. It is grace, all of grace, worked by grace. Grace empowers us to be. Grace saves us from who we are. Grace, by God's grace. So I thank you for sharing that song with us tonight. Um, if you will, uh, take your Bible, turn to the book of the Revelation of Jesus. Uh, and we are going to pick up in the next couple of verses, uh, verses 7 and 8. And uh, before I read that to you, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your great grace. That grace alone, that saves through faith alone, in Christ alone. God, that alone brings you glory. And we praise you. Lord, I pray that you will help us to behold you tonight. Father, I help, pray that you will help us to, Lord, savor the truth of verse 7 and verse 8 in the book of the Revelation. That, Father God, you will help us to, God, have eager anticipation in our hearts for the day. When the eastern sky will split and the Son of Man will descend to gather His elect, His true church. Father, may we long for that time. May we look for that time. May we anticipate that time, Father. Lord, may that day that is coming... That future grace that will be bestowed on your church. Though it will be a time of judgment for those not written in the Lamb's book of life. I pray, Father, that that future grace for us will help us walk in great hope. No matter what we face in these days upon us. Lord, it is in Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen. Well, tonight we return to this very fascinating book called The Revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not revelations. There's no S on the end, okay? It's The Revelation of Jesus Christ. And tonight, verse 7 and verse 8 that uh, will sound familiar to you because we have visited these particular verses independently before. Um, but we're going to look at it tonight as we're working our way through this entire book, the Revelation. But verse 7, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. In other words, let it be so. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, 
the Almighty. Amen. This is the word of our Lord. Now, I know I told you that we were moving slowly through here and it looked like it was going to take us forever to get through the book of Revelation. I told you that things were going to speed up. We looked at three verses, then three more verses, I believe it was. But now I have pulled back and we're looking at two tonight. But I promise you, even though we're moving at a snail's pace, we will pick up speed. It's like, um, uh, have you ever ridden on a roller coaster? How many of you have been in a roller coaster before? It's kind of like we're, we're in the roller coaster, we're on the incline, and we're inching our way up, 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 and then we're going to get to the pinnacle, and then shoo, zero to 60 in just a matter of a second, Okay. It's going to be um, frightful and full of joy as we work our way through the book of the Revelation. Now, um, I promise you I'm not going to reteach and review everything that, that has preceded. Um, because by the time we got to chapter 22, that would be days and days and days of review. But I will kind of help you see just where we are. Um, we started out in verses 1 through 3. And which simply stated that this was the revelation of Jesus Christ. I told you, that is the thesis of this book. It is, is, is the revealing, the unveiling of who Christ is and His great glory, a glory which is manifested, and we'll see something about that tonight, manifested at His return. That is the height. That's why Paul calls it the glorious appearing in his writings. And then verse 4 through 6, we looked at um, sort of, I, I guess you could call it, the triune revelation of of God and a threefold description of our Christ, and we rejoiced in those that that revelation of our Christ. And now we're coming to verse seven, eight. Verse seven is the first prophetic word that is given in the book of Revelation. You come to it, verse number seven, and then verse eight. Um, just sort of clarifies the stamp of God on it. But we come to verse 7. It's the first prophetic. It is the, matter of fact, it is the prophetic theme throughout the book of Revelation. Remember I told you it's all about the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's all about showing us who Christ is. And the ultimate revelation of Jesus Christ is seen when He returns. And so everything in the book is relating to that prophetic Theme in some way, pointing towards that. Um, now, the message of verse 7, the mess central theme of the book of Revelation, it, it is something that comes under great spiritual attack. Devils and demons do not like the preaching of the return of Christ. Satan hates it. Because when Christ returns, the, Satan knows his doom is sealed. I mean, he already knows it, but he hates it. That ultimate triumph of the church, that ultimate triumph of the Lamb of God coming as the Lion of the tribe of Judah, he hates that. He hates the message of verse 7, that he's coming. He hates that. Um, and usually... There, there are a lot of different ways that he aims to attack that, but you see and you'll note 
out in the world, there is at least three main ways that Satan seems to be um, trying to discredit the message of the coming of Christ. To try and rob us of the joy of the message of the coming of Christ. To try and rob us, church, of the spiritual practicality of the message of the coming of Christ. And he, he does it in, in at least three main ways that I see. And I want to mention these before we get into the text tonight. Um, just so you're aware of this. Um, I think that they, they try to discredit it by raising up false prophets. False prophets that declare Jesus is coming and they set dates and times and say that, you know, Jesus is coming back on uh, such and such date at such and such time and then it comes and it doesn't happen. And the more and more and more and more that happens, the more and more and more people out in the world get disillusioned with the message that Jesus is coming. Um, I remember back, this was several years ago, I believe it was about 2011, had a, a Bryant Riley, a good friend of mine. He uh, served as a student pastor uh, with me at the first church I had ever pastored um, out in Ralph, Alabama, Shiloh Baptist Church. That, that Baptist church, it was a sweet, sweet group of people. The pulpit set in Greene County, the remainder of the church, they say, <laughs> was in Tuscaloosa County. The county line split it. And I told him, because back then I was very animated, folks. I mean, I was walking up and down the aisles. I was, I'm liable to turn a flip on the front pew. You just didn't know what I, I was going to do back at that very young age at pastoring. And, and uh, I, I used to tell him, I said, the reason I come down there where y'all are all the time is because I don't like preaching to you from another county. But anyway, he, he called me and he asked me one time, he said, what do you know about Harold Camping? Any of you remember the name Harold Camping? I said, well, you know, I, I, he sounds familiar. He said, well, he's this guy. I've been listening to him on the radio. And he, he came out the other day and he said that he thinks that Jesus is going to return on May the 20-something, 2011. I said, well, you can stop listening to him at that point. And, of course, he agreed with me. He understood that. And um, I thought, but his name sounds familiar. And then... I decided to Google his name, Harold Camping. Well, then I saw this is, he, he's done this before. Back in 1994, he said that Jesus was going to return on September the 6th. Well, guess what? That day came, that day went. There was no rapture of the church. There was no battle of Armageddon. There was no, there was not, nothing happened. So he was a false Prophet, and you, you see this kind of attack. And it, it just sort of makes those of us that are continually proclaiming that he's coming look like well, maybe we don't know what we're talking about. Okay? Um, I remember in, in the, and this was when I was really a kid, um, wasn't saved at all or anything. Back in 1988, there was a little book that came out, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture is in 88. 88 came and went. There was no... Return or rap, none, none of that took place. It was Edgar C. Wiscant. 
who came up with, with that. And a lot of churches, a lot of Baptists, a lot of churches bought into that. And we're all in, into that. Then you've got people like the Watchtower Society. That's the Jehovah's Witnesses. They predicted Jesus would return in 1914, 1915, 1918, 1920, 1925, 1941, 1975. You'd think they'd get the point. They predicted again in 1994. And as far as I know, I don't think they have. Since then. But again, I, I, maybe they have. I don't know. But those kind of people are bound to come. And those kind of attacks are bound to come. And Jesus told us that this would happen. There would be people who say, here's the Christ. There's the Christ. Okay? So we shouldn't be shocked by that. But I, I believe that's one of the ways in which the enemy wants to discredit the, the, the profound importance of the message to us of verse 7. Behold, I'm coming. Now another way that I think it gets discredited is by demons and devils raising up skeptics. There are those that raise it up and try to discredit it because of the very language of Scripture. Things like where it says, you know, where, for example, in Revelation where it talks about how he's going to reveal things soon to come. And we talked about that last week, about, not last week, but the week before, about how things are in an eternal setting when you look at it. And we've been in the last day since Christ ascended into heaven. But nevertheless, you have people that will attack the language of Scripture, trying to undermine it. And trying to discredit it. But they are bound to come. The most disturbing though. The most diabolical attack. I think is in this third way. This third way is. that is, I believe that devils and demons are raising up. Pastors and preachers and teachers. That are not even interested in proclaiming the second coming. And you say, Pastor, is that happening? Is that so? I read a disturbing statistic put out by the World Council of Churches. And they did a survey of 100 American pastors. They were across denominational lines. And they surveyed them to consider the importance of the, the preaching of the second coming. Their finding was disturbing. Out of all of the hundreds of people that they surveyed that were pretty evenly distributed across the denominational labels, only 10%, only 10% found worth and value in preaching the second coming of Christ. Whoa! That is bothersome. That is scary. 90 that that t- 90% of the pastors surveyed do not see the spiritual worth and the practicality of preaching the return of Christ. Now I don't know, maybe they surveyed a bad bunch, maybe they got a bad group. I nevertheless it bothers me that those guys are in ministry and are in churches. Because it makes me wonder out of that many men, do they study the scriptures? Because if you just let just a just a just a little survey of your Bible, do a systematic study from Genesis to Revelation, and you'll find out the preeminence and the priority of the second coming in the scriptures. 
You can't get away from it. You can't back away from it. Just to give you some statistical information, I have given you these statistics before as I have referenced the second coming of Christ. This does not change, but let me remind you of this. There are 660 general prophecies throughout the Scripture. 333 of them are about Christ. 109 deal with the first coming, but 224 of them deal with the second coming. In the Old Testament... You find 46 prophets, 10 which speak of the first coming of Christ, 36 of them deal with the second coming of Christ. You find in the New Testament, one out of every 25 verses references the second coming of Christ. You find that for every time the first coming is mentioned, there are eight times that the second coming is mentioned. You find that Jesus himself refers to his return some 21 times. And throughout the New Testament, there are over 50 times that we are warned to be ready for the second coming. So, this is a big deal. This is not just an obscure verse. This is a big deal all throughout the Scripture. The return of Christ is the biggest deal that we can ever begin to consider. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. And He's coming soon. Now I can't tell you the dime. I can't tell you the date. I can't tell you the week. I can't tell you the month. But I can tell you He's coming. He's coming. He'll be back. So tonight in verse 7, we find the first prophetic oracle and the main prophetic theme of Revelation, the second coming. It's a short little verse. It's sweet. (laughs) Sweet little verse. It's electrifying what it says in verse 7. This, it captures, in, in that short little statement, it captures the pinnacle the pinnacle of everything in the book of Revelation. I mean, it, it captures the pinnacle, the zenith of everything in existence. Because everything, since the creation, everything is racing toward the ultimate revelation of God our Savior. A revelation that is only seen when Christ Jesus returns. When it is fully realized and fully noted. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. Wow. This is why, as I have mentioned, Paul calls it the glorious appearing. It is the ultimate revelation of Jesus Christ. There may be a large segment of disinterested pastors, preachers, and teachers, but I say let every man like that be a liar and God be true. Because you know what God tells us right here? He tells us to behold He's coming. Behold. He's saying, look, pay attention. He's coming. Take note. He's coming. Write it down. He's coming. Know it. Be aware. He is coming. Pay very careful attention. 
Verse 7 starts out, Behold. Behold. The Lord is saying, pay attention. And what does He say? Pay attention to. I am coming. Wow. Do you, do you hear that? I am coming. Behold. He is coming. That, guys, is in the present tense. It's in the present tense. Do you know what that means? He's already on his way. I've noted that to you before. He's already on his way. You said, well, how, how, how can that be? I'm telling you, he's already on his way. And, the, and looking at things in the, in the, from an eternal perspective, Jesus is as good as here. He's as good as here from the moment he stepped into heaven and he started sitting at the right hand of the Father. <laughs> he's on his way. He is on his way. He's coming. Jesus is not Jesus is not walking around the, the streets of heaven looking around down at the earth thinking, well, do I want to come back on this cloud? Or do I want to come back on that cloud? Do I want to ride this white horse? Or do I want to ride that white horse? No, He's already suited up and He's coming. It is as good as done from the perspective of God. Is that not neat? Is that not neat to know that? To consider that? To think about that? Behold, He's coming, He's coming, He's coming. Now, within Christendom, within the true church, um, we have different ways of looking at the manner of that coming. That's reality. Okay, we have to. There are there are different ways to look at it within the boundaries of orthodoxy. You will find that men who have studied the scriptures for years and years and years may disagree over the manner of which he's coming. And I'll address some of these as we get into certain areas of the book of Revelation. Perhaps I will even challenge the status quo. But the important thing is knowing he's coming. Right? He's coming. He's coming, He's coming, He's coming, He's on His way. Verse 7, He's coming, He's on His way. Verse 7, behold, pay attention, He's coming. Now when I look at that verse, it just unfolds in three nice little ways. There are, well in verse 7 and in verse 8, there, in verse 7 there are two things that I can't get past in verse 7. And there's one thing about verse 8 that I can't get past. And then next week, Lord willing, as we look into a greater revelation of Jesus Christ, I want to show you something really cool about connecting this here in verse 8 to something that's said in verse 17. And I tell you, it'll set your feet to dancing. 
But we're, we're not in next week. Well, it won't be next week. It'll be the week after. We've got to eat ice cream next week. But um, nevertheless, there are, there are three things. When, here's what we see right here. We see that His coming, it, it, it will be just that. It will be full of glory. We see that His coming, number two, that it, it, it's not going to be a secret. To use improper English, I mean, it might have been proper back in the 1800s, but to use improper English, it ain't going to be, no, it ain't going to be a secret. Excuse me, I almost said a double negative. All right? And then, His coming, verse 8, in order to just, it's like God wants to just give it extra authority and weight to what's just said. It's like God verifies it with, with, with what He says in verse 8. And so, um, let's look at these three very quickly tonight at the speed of the Spirit. But His his coming will be full of glory. You say, well, how do you see that there? Well, notice in verse number 7 that the text says, the text says, Behold, He is coming with the clouds. He's coming with the clouds. Um, that phrase is not so much a literal description of a white fluffy cloud that Jesus is returning of, so much as the imagery that, of what it's conveying. And in order to get an understanding of the imagery that it's conveying, you have to go back to its Old Testament origins. And in its Old Testament origins, you find that this issue of clouds in connection with God is always referring to, almost always referring to, a revelation or an unveiling of God's glory. Think about it. In Exodus 40, the cloud of glory of the Lord we see. In 1 Kings 8.10, upon the completion of the temple, what was it that filled the temple? The cloud of the glory of the Lord. And the clouds... He's coming on the clouds. He's coming with. He's coming in, in in the Shekinah glory of God. He's coming as a revelation of that glory. He's coming, and it will be an unveiling of that glory like the world has never seen. I remind you, the world has only seen the veiled glory of Jesus. When you go to John's Gospel, the same John that wrote the book of Revelation, when you go over to, to John's Gospel in, 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 in chapter number 1 of the Gospel of John, we read these words concerning the incarnation of Jesus. It says... Um, it says this, it says in the Word. Now, who's the Word? Well, the Word was with God and the Word was God. <laughs> Later on up there in, in the chapter. And he says, in the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glorious of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from him, and for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, well, he has made him known. Now, you go back up again. To verse 14, it says, In the Word, the Word which was God, the Word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us. In other words, he, he, it literally means it's like He pitched His tent in human flesh. He became one of us. He was fully human. But you see, the glory, the full glory, the full glory, it was veiled behind the humanity of Jesus. You see, Peter, James, and John, I think, got a little glimpse of it in Matthew chapter 17 on the Mount of Transfiguration. If you'll remember, when, when they went there and, and there was Jesus was there with, with Moses and Elijah, and his face was like white. It was like just this white piercing light emanating from him. I think it's like Jesus just sort of peeled back a little bit of the veil and was letting the glory out. But he is the glory of God. A glory that has not been fully seen and will not be fully seen until he returns. It's a glory that is so pure that Moses Moses only had it partially revealed to him in Exodus 33. But at the second coming, there won't be a barrier. <laughs> there won't be a barrier to the glory. And God's going to set up everything in the universe for the unveiling of that glory. Because you know what's going to happen, don't you? The sun goes black. The stars fade. Let me just give you an infinitesimal example of what this will be like. Have you ever been trying to go to sleep in an absolutely dark room and some yahoo comes in and flips on the light? Gosh, it's blinding. Okay. Well, imagine that day. It won't be quite like that. Because it's going to be black darkness. Unlike any kind of darkness you've ever seen. No light. <laughs> None. Closest I've ever come to absolute darkness is DeSoto Caverns. Have you ever been to DeSoto Caverns? You go into Soto Caverns, they do this thing where you go down to the very bottom of it and they cut out the lights. Guys, you can't see anything. That's what the entire universe will be like. He who said, let there be light, will say, put it out for just a moment. He can do that. He's God. I mean, you know, he can make the earth stand still. <laughs> he, 
He can put a man in the belly of a whale. I mean, you know, we could go on and on and on and on. He can do anything he wants to do. But in that moment, on the backdrop of absolute blackness, in the twinkling of an eye, whoosh, lights on <laughs> the unveiled glory of Jesus Christ will be revealed. And oh my, in that moment, the Bible says in that verse, and every eye will see him. <laughs> Who wouldn't? The glory is everywhere. The glory is piercing everything. Every eye will see him. That's why I say his coming won't be secret. You remember all those dates the Jehovah's Witnesses said? <laughs> you know, there was in 19, I think it was their 1914 prediction when when 1914 came and went and, and Jesus didn't return. You know what they said? Well, Jesus came and Jesus, but it was it was he was invisible. Only the 144,000 saw him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and problem is some people would really believe that because they don't know their Bible they don't know their Bible but fact guys the, every eye will see him every eye the, it doesn't matter if it's a regenerate eye the saved eye or a, 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 a spiritually dead eye it'll see him every person will see him everybody in Colbert County will see him everybody in these United States, we'll see him. Everybody around the world in the deepest, darkest jungles of sub-Saharan Africa, they will see him. We all will see him. Now, it's interesting to me that when you look at this particular verse, he mentions two different categories of people. He says, even those who have pierced him, which signifies one group, and all the tribes of the earth that will wail, that seems to signify another group. Now, what's he talking about when he, when he speaks of those who've pierced him? Well, it becomes apparent that in that particular text, the truth of Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10 is being spoken in that moment. And I'm going to read Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10 to you in a moment to show you that's why I believe what I believe about this particular verse. I think these, who's, even those who pierced him... I think those who look, and, and even those that have pierced him, they look and I think they experience a godly sorrow. I think that these are people that in that moment, like a thief on the cross, because grace can save in a twinkling of an eye, I think they experience regeneration. Now, why do I say that? Well, over in Zechariah, Zechariah 12 Verse 10. Listen to these words. And you can look them up when you get home. Uh, 
It says, and I will, the Lord says, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of, the, of Jerusalem a spirit of grace. 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 Okay. He says, I will pour out a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, of whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. As one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him, as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning. And he goes on and he talks about the Valley of Medigo. That's why I relate this to the second coming. But if you know the Valley of Medigo, that is the, the area where um, we find, I think, the nations gathered against the Lord at his return in Revelation chapter 19. We refer to that as the, the day of Armageddon, uh, which is the day that Christ returns. And wow, oh, what a day that will be. So I think these are people that on that moment will be broken and weep and wail. And see that this Christ is He who was crushed for their iniquity, for their sin. Now, there are others that would disagree with me on that, and that's okay. But then there's the group, all the tribes of the earth will wail. And I really think that is a picture of worldly sorrow that doesn't lead to repentance. Okay, I think they're, oh yeah, they're wailing, but it's not a godly wailing. The tribes of the world, you find often throughout the book of the Revelation, the world and the tribes of the world is, 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 is a reference and seems to be imagery for unregenerate, lost humanity. People who do not know the Lord. And in that day, there will wail and there will be a wailing. That word that is used there is a word, kapto, that means to cut. And literally, I think they'll be wailing and want to just cut themselves like the prophets of Baal did. Think they'll want to do it. They'll be crying out for the rocks to cover them. These people that wail, they are those that we find mentioned in the sixth chapter of the book of Revelation and about verse number 16. Let me read to you this day of wailing, this great day of wailing. Because over in chapter 6 and in verse number 16, we read these words. He says this. And every one slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? Wow. And I am convinced these are the same. The one and the same. Wow. Oh, what a day that will be. That is the pinnacle of Christ's glory. That is the theme, the prophetic theme 
in the book of the Revelation. Though the book of the Revelation, again, I remind you, it's going to show us things in the past. It's going to show us things going on in the present. And it's going to speak to things in the future. They're all there. And we need to pay attention. Behold it. And so we have this prophecy that is given. And then, verse number 8. I want to read verse 7 in, in conjunction with verse 8 again. The prophecy is this. Behold, He's coming with the clouds. Every eye will see Him, even those who pierce Him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, amen, it shall be so. Verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. It's like God saying, mm, I'm putting my stamp on this. I'm verifying this. I'm the one that's saying this. I'm the one that's saying this. I'm the one that's saying this. Pay attention to it. Pay attention to it. Behold, he is coming.